About 10 years ago, Rose and I got a, a wonderful gift from the members of our church uh, just a little bit earlier in the year than this. It was right close to our anniversary. And uh, they gave us uh, this wonderful gift. It was a night's stay at a beautiful, luxurious hotel in uh, Whistler. And uh, it's situated on a small lake. It's called Nita Lake uh, Lodge, I think. And it's situated on a small lake that, I don't know, it doesn't even take that long to walk around, but um, it's beautiful. And there's trails for hiking and cycling, and they have complimentary bikes so you know for guests that are staying there, so you can ride all over Whistler, and uh, you can hike. And the, in fact, the first afternoon were there, we were walking along that little lake, and there's, you know, a well, it, it's probably even paved, I don't remember, or it's uh, that crushed rock, there's a pathway, and we're looking down the path, and there's the lake on one side, and a drop off of maybe, I don't know, six or seven feet, and a rock face on the other side, and some, you know, trees that are going up on this rock face, and we're looking down the, you know, path a little bit, a little past, maybe a little longer than this building, and there's something moving in the shrub, in the bush between the water and the path, and it was a bear, and so we're going, and I, you know, I'm kind of thinking, okay, it's Whistler, I know it's right, that little hotel is not right in the town, but on the edge, and I'm sort of moving warily, because the bear seems occupied with berries, you know, in that little bush. And uh, Rose was behind me pushing me. She's pushing me forward. She's, yes, it was. She's kind of pushing me from behind. Let's go. We'll go past it. It doesn't care about us. And it's like, well, then you go first. And, you know, anyway, we went by and, you know, we were kind of wary of the thing, but it really was interested in berries. And it was, you know, it was fairly small, um, you know. A few others rode by on bikes. They didn't walk by. They went by at much greater speed than us. Anyway, we stayed at this hotel, and it was fine dining, and the room was like a suite with, you know, a fireplace, and uh, just it was just luxury, and it was beautiful, and the staff just extended themselves in every way to make guests feel like they were all VIPs. And uh, it, was, it was a wonderful experience for us. And we really, we felt like royalty. It was just a night, but it was just a blessing. We were there, you know, all that day, that night, and most of the next day until we returned to the reality of our routine lives. And, um, you know, where everyone knows that we're not VIPs. Um, and I... There is an issue with being treated that way. I notice a problem. When you're treated that way, I can get really used to it. <laughs> like, I would like it. I've never been in first class. How many people here have ever flown first class on a plane? Okay, not many. Okay, good. Um, you're not lifting your hand because you don't want to be judged. <laughs> I've never been in first class. In fact, even when I've looked that direction on a plane, they just say, don't even think about it. Get, get to your spot over the wing at the back, you know. But you get, you get treated like a VIP, and 
it's kind of addictive. You, you could easily get used to that kind of treatment. And, you know, if people are wealthy enough and uh, have enough authority, they are used to that. They can eat in places like that and stay in places like that regularly and get pampered like that. And I could see how you could develop a sense of entitlement. And sadly, I even remember hearing a minister of the gospel say one time something about flying first class, and he said, like a prophet of God ought to. And I thought, yikes. (laughs) I agree. She's got this look like, you know, hey, if God blesses you, wonderful. And something happens. I've heard of that happening to people. Hey, we're, you know, we've got some kind of booking. We've got a spot in first class and you get a blessing. Great. But to think that I'm entitled as a man, I feel right away like, oh, oh, danger, danger. There's warning bells going off at that point. But that's sort of the way of the world that you climb up and you get that kind of treatment, and then you can get accustomed to it. I'm, this is what is mine, and I'm, I'm entitled to this, or um, maybe not entitlement, but an ex- expectation of it. And that's sort of the way of the world. Those with wealth and authority are served by those with little or no wealth or authority, right? Jesus even said that. That's how it goes in the world. He said when his disciples were talking about those things, he said among the, the Gentile nations, he says, that's how it is. These ones, these ones have those ones serving. And Jesus seems to point out very early on, the kingdom of God is not going to be quite like that. It's going to be different. Things are turned on their uh, turned upside down or on their side at the very least. So with, you know, we... We're going to look at Jesus tonight and the way of the kingdom, connected to where we've been for the last four weeks from 1 Peter, talking about the end is near, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. And he says in that each one of us has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. That's how we express that fervent love for one another. So with that backdrop of our study of Peter's letter to the church, and his appeal to us to express fervent love for one another through serving with the gifts that God supplies. With that backdrop, I want us to read, as you can see, Jesus serves up here. We're going to read John 13, 1 to 17. Now before the feast of the Passover... It was the day before. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. 
And so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, I love this. To Peter, that's an intolerable thought, that he would be excluded from anything with Jesus. So it's like, if, you know, he says, no, you'll never wash me. If I don't wash you, you don't have any part with me. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. I want to come back to that in just a second. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I want to come back for just a second to verse 10, because this verse was always a little funny to me. He says, Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. The first part of that, where he says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. The idea here was, if someone was invited to someone's house for dinner in this culture, they would bathe. They were, they're coming for a meal, they're coming for a feast, is, is sort of the thinking. They would bathe, but because of the conditions of the roads and most the kind of shoes they had were little more than some kind of a platform with some straps that held them on. So their feet naturally were dirty. Everything else is clean. They, they showed up and so they would do this. They, they didn't need to bathe. So he's saying to Peter, no, you've come to this meal, to this feast. And he's saying, you're clean. Now he's speaking about a deeper reality as well, but he's saying, no, in this instance, it's only your feet that customary washing of the feet that is necessary. You've already been made clean. And then he says, but not all of you. He knows what's about to happen on that night. This is, this is when that's happening. So there's all of that, um, the backdrop. So it's the end of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. He knows it. He knows his hour has come. Early in the book of John, when his mother asked him to do something, and he said, you know, my hour has not come. And it happens a few other times where it says they were going to stone him. They were going to get rid of him. They were going to push him off a cliff. But it says his hour had not come, and he walked right out. He knew it wasn't his hour. And he had the confidence and in his father that he could walk right through that, that they couldn't get him. His hour had not come, but now it's different. His hour has come, and it says, before the Passover, the day before, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come. So here's Jesus. It's the end of his life and ministry. What does he do? 
it says at the end of verse 1, he loved them to the end. So he knows his hour has come. There's a very short time left. And he loved them to the end. The, the words that are translated that way could be translated, he loved them to completion. It could be worded, he loved them to completion. And I know one commentator said, the sense of what he's saying there is that he, uh, he, he saw it through. He, he loved them and he saw it through to the end. He was loving them. He, he, there's no way he's going to stop now. He saw it through to the very end. This love for these, these disciples, this little group of this sort of ragtag group that's been following him three and a half years. So, he knew his hour had come. He'd depart. He, he knew he would depart imminently, very soon, back to the Father. And he knew, verse 3, that the Father had given all things into his hands. Now, some translations like uh, NIV and New Living, when it says the Father had given all things into his hands, it says all authority or all power. All things have been given into his hands. That's what it's talking about. All authority has been given into his hands. He knew he'd come from the Father and he knew he was going to the Father. That is, he knew his identity. He knew who he was. Of all the people that ever lived, Jesus knew that he was God in the flesh. He was the Savior of the world. He's carrying that, that knowledge, and he's carrying that knowledge knowing that I'm going to accomplish my saving work today. In the next few hours, that's there. Wow, I cannot imagine the weight that he would be feeling at that moment. But what does he do? With that weight, he serves his disciples. He's thinking about them. He knew his identity. He knew theirs too, even though they didn't really get it. He knew who he was. He knew he was the savior of the world. He was the VIP of VIPs. Before he did what he did, these things were in his mind. That's why it says three times, he knew, he knew, he knew these things. And it it says like, Jesus, knowing this, did such and such. Jesus, knowing this, that was the backdrop for his and the motivation for his works. Now, one other thing to add here that Luke includes about the Last Supper, about this particular event. In uh, Luke twenty-two twenty-four, if you're writing, if you're taking notes, Luke twenty-two twenty-four. Luke adds how the disciples that night had argued among themselves about who who was the greatest. Now, I know that their, their argument had to do with who's the second greatest, ultimately, because I, there was no doubt they, they, weren't, they weren't that dumb. They, they knew, th- but it was who after Jesus is the greatest among us. And this is the day before Passover. It's like Christmas Eve. This is the, the big day on the Jewish calendar And what they're having an argument about at the dinner is, or maybe prior to the dinner, is who's the greatest among us, among them? Did it really matter who was the greatest? 
did it really? Especially in that hour. Jesus is about to be tried and crucified, put in a grave, and then rise from the dead. Did, did that really matter who was the greatest? Not, you know, not really. But they obviously thought so. And I, I was thinking as I was preparing today, I wish we'd have been there to set them all straight. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. You know, yeah. But Jesus, who really is the greatest in every way, he gets up from the table. Now, that's taken place. Jesus knows all these things, but the disciples have had this discussion, this little argument. Maybe they're still kind of stewing about it, and one of them, you know, Peter's thinking, obviously it's me. I was on the mountain of transfiguration with those other guys, but I'm the one that spoke and said, let's build a tabernacle for you and Elijah and Moses. Um, you know, and somebody else is thinking, you know, John, but I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, you know, I was just leaning with my head on the chest of Jesus. Look how close I am. And, you know, whatever. Somebody else is thinking something. But Jesus, who is the greatest, removes, uh, he stands up from the table, removes his outer clothes, his outer garments. So he's, that's actually why I had trouble finding the right kind of image, even this one. He's wearing, he wouldn't, he wasn't like that. Jesus, he took off his outer garment and was dressed like a slave, like a servant. And um, he, he wrapped a towel around his waist and assumed the station of a servant, or even, if we can bear it, of a slave, of someone who doesn't mean he was it doesn't mean that the slave in the home was always ill-treated, but it means that he wasn't free to just leave at any time. He, he lived there, and that was his, his life. So customarily, if someone came to the home for a meal, water was available for the feet to be washed, like I said a moment ago. <clears throat> if a household had servants... This role of washing feet was the role of the lowest of them. That, it wasn't like the head waiter said, well, you know, here, let me put down the, the pasta for a minute and I'll come and... No, this was the lowest of the servants. Now, in this case, the one who is the highest, he is in fact God in the flesh, miracle of miracles. He takes the role of the lowest, the lowest servant, and not just, it's not just to teach them a lesson, no. It's part of loving them to the end. That was, that was at the beginning of this. He's loving them. He wants to show them this, but he's loving them to the very end. I don't believe he was just doing it thinking, oh, this is going to be a great teaching for them someday. No, he's got a hold of their feet, and it's like he loves that person, and he's caring for them. I read when I was preparing about a... Um, a, a a military man who loved his platoon, uh, his group of guys, so much that if he saw anybody limping and it had to do with you know something on his feet, some kind of thing, that this guy would personally inspect. And, the, and they said they, they knew this uh, leader, whatever his rank was, I don't remember, they knew that he 
didn't just have a bunch of guys working for him, but he cared about them. He, and also he knew if they couldn't walk, if they were compromised in their feet, they're, they're not as valuable as soldiers, right? They're going to be compromised. But he loved them. He cared for them. He took, he got down where they were and cared about, the, you know, their feet. I mean, you know, that's just sort of like the, the lowest part of you. You know, and he's down there. But here's Jesus loving them, and he's loving his father in doing it. This is an act of love for the disciples, but an act of love. It's out of love for God, wanting to honor God. So, out of love, God in the flesh is washing the feet of sinful, flawed, prideful, Arguing about who's the greatest, humans. He's doing that. And I don't know that I really ever saw it so much, but had myself in that position of thinking, walking with Jesus, seeing him do miracles, seeing him teach like nobody, one thing after another, calm the sea, you know, do... do, it seemed like nothing is beyond, nothing's impossible for him. And he's now kneeling and he's down here handling our feet like mine and yours. Like he's doing that for us. Jesus, he's God, God omnipotent. He's the second person of the Trinity that we were singing about. That's God doing that. He's humbling himself down there, doing that. Really, God would do that for you? Yes. Yes. He, he gets right down low for us. Among humans. Who are, arguing, who are arguing about who's the greatest. Now, this is just a snapshot of Jesus' whole ministry, and especially the crucifixion. He allowed himself not just to be humbled, but to be humiliated, stripped naked and hung for all to see. No rights, knowing, as he even said, at any moment... All he had to say was, Father, send a legion of angels and those people mocking, those people inflicting pain, and all people for all eternity would be damned. So instead, he stayed there. The highest takes the place of the lowest for the sake of love. That's the motivation. The sinless for the sinful. This great switch that happens in the gospel. The king of heaven for the slaves of earth. The holy for the unholy. The Lord of all for you, for me. The Lord of lords. This is the glory of God that we're going to celebrate for all eternity. That's why in heaven, in the book of Revelation, he's pictured they still see the wounds It's like those are his glory. He humbled himself to do that. It's not just that, oh, I'm entitled because I'm so powerful and everything. Yeah, his power looked like, didn't look like power. He got low and did that. The kingdom has that flip again. I participated in a foot washing service twice in the first few years I was a believer. Anybody else here ever in a foot washing service? 
Okay, just a few. Maybe you had the same experience as me. I'm not sure. It was very humbling to be part of that. And surprisingly, I found it much more humbling to be the person having my feet washed than to be the person doing the washing. That was, that was a, a challenge to have someone come and humble himself and do that for me. So I can appreciate what Peter is feeling when he says, no way, no chance. You are going, Peter says, you are going to wash my feet? Like, you know, we just see, Lord, do you wash my feet? In verse 6, in the New American Standard, it's worded that way. But I think if you could hear the inflection, it would be, you are going to wash my feet? That would be the emphasis rather than, no, no, I, I, Peter is funny. He sticks his foot in his mouth a lot of times, but he's not dumb. He would know that if anybody should be doing some foot washing of anybody, it should be me washing your feet, not the other way around. You're going to wash my feet? No way. Never, he says. He actually says never. Um, Never will you wash my feet. Peter is confronted with this upside-down kingdom culture shift, and he says, no, this is messed up. That's the job of the lowliest servant. And that's after he and his pals had been arguing about who was the greatest. Suddenly, that didn't really matter, but none of them uh, had a moment's doubt about Jesus being the greatest. They all knew that. They were arguing about second place. So now Jesus comes to do that. And do you know in 1 Peter, just a few verses after the section we've been reading for a few weeks, Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. And then he says, God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. Clothe yourselves with humility. I wonder if he was referring in his head, he was picturing, I had Jesus the Savior kneeling before me, holding my feet in a basin, washing. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. He had the prime example. No greater example could ever be. But here's here's something deeper than just foot washing. Jesus says, Peter, I know you don't understand this right now, but later you will. Peter digs his heels in. Never will you wash my feet. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter is probably thinking the lesser should be serving the greater, but Jesus speaks to a deeper reality. Unless I first serve you, you'll never know me or serve me. I have to first serve you. He's talking about what's about to be accomplished. You you can't be the servant you would be if I don't first serve you, if I don't, if I don't set this pattern for you. Jesus, after he has served us, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, we're, we're only qualified to know and serve Jesus after he has served us and washed us. If he didn't act as the great servant, then 
we wouldn't be saved. We wouldn't have an opportunity. Peter could have just accepted this and kept quiet, but again, I love him because he reminds me of you guys. He just had to say more. He says, okay then. (laughs) If belonging to you is contingent upon being washed by you, don't stop at my feet, do my hands and my head. I wonder if he wasn't the first one in the lineup. Here's this murky water with some stuff floating around in it. And Jesus says, okay, let me get behind the ears. You know, like, you know, yeah, gross. Who would want this? You know, but Peter, he's that kind of guy. He's sort of all in, right? I mean, I love him for it. I love that, that he's like, okay, Jesus, if, if being washed by you is, is what it costs, I want it all. Give me the full treatment. He's, then he says the thing about, no, it's only your feet. So, verses 12 to 14, let's read this. He goes on after he explains about, you know, we don't need to wash everything. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. A lowly job. I wash your feet, a lowly job. You should do the same for one another. The vital thing is not foot washing itself, because especially in our culture, I don't. It doesn't hold the same meaning. It, it's a symbolic thing, and it's humbling. But we don't have the same need for that that they did in that culture. The you know the condition of the walkways and the roads, the kind of footwear they had, that really meant something uh, for them. Uh, I'm not even sure. I have heard people. Um, you know, suggest things that might be the equivalent of foot washing in our culture. And I haven't yet heard something that quite equals that. I've heard lots of things, and there are lots of ways we can humble ourselves and serve uh, doing kind of, you know, humble tasks or menial tasks or things that would, you know, uh, take a, a lowering of ourselves. There's a lot of stuff like that, but nothing quite like foot washing. But the point is, he says, I've set an example for you. I washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. You ought to serve with humility one another. You ought to care for one another this way. There's ways you can do it. Listening to other people, praying for them, making calls for them, feeding them maybe, driving them somewhere, picking them up, uh, helping them with schoolwork, um, you know, helping someone with some skill that you have that they don't. Uh, I'm thankful for people who do those kind of things. For me personally, I'm for the church because of something that for them doesn't take much. You know, they like they know they have a gift. There's a guy who used to be in the church years ago. For, he was in the church for many years, and he was a mechanic for 
Mercedes Benz, and there were a few times where I needed something done, and he did it, and I knew it was even something fairly simple, a fairly simple mechanical thing, but I also know it would have taken me three hours, and it took him 40 minutes because he knew exactly how to do it, had the right tools, and came and did it. And it's like, thank you very much. Wow, a whole day. And there are people in this church, and I won't start naming them, who've done a lot of things like that for the church and for me over the time, because if I start, then I'll leave somebody out, and I don't want to do that. So let me just say thank you to the people who have employed their gifts to serve the one another of Compass Church. It, it's, and it might not even be for the church as, a, as an organization when you're doing it. You just do something for somebody um, privately, and it's like that's part of the serving one another. Something like that gets done, and it makes a huge difference. And it might be something where it, it just required a a motivation of love to say, I can meet that need. I can do it. But the key, verse 15. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done. Serve one another. Humble yourselves and serve one another. He already said, I'm your your teacher and Lord. That's true. But he did it anyway. The kingdom of God is ordered this way. The leader is the servant, right? Jesus says that in other places. The greatest is the least. You want to be the greatest? You be the least. I can't imagine it was lost on them that they had had that argument earlier. And that it was probably, oh, yeah, we were talking about that. And here's Jesus saying that. The way higher is lower. The way higher in the kingdom Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he carries on and explains to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm going to serve in the meanest. And I mean mean in the sense of low, in the lowest, most challenging, most humbling way possible. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I came to serve. Follow my example. He's he's pushing the people of God. He's pushing his disciples. That's who's hearing this. My pastor, when I lived in Edmonton before I moved here, uh, my pastor said this thing one time. He had a bunch of new people all came into the church. I was part of that wave of young people. And there was a group of us that were musicians. And we all came in at the same time. One of them I knew. We came in together. And then his brother-in-law had just arrived at the church too. Fantastic testimony of how God touched him and did miracles to bring this guy in. And Pastor Brian said it one, one day, he just said, look, if you're expecting God to open up a broad ministry for you, but you're not 
serving in some way where you are now, he said, don't bother looking out there at this, you know, kind of broad scope ministry. He said, start applying yourself now. Start serving right now where you are. And the next, (laughs) I don't know that it actually happened the very next week, but within a matter of a week or two, there was was suddenly a new band in the church. Like, we're all watching, you know, him kind of use his gift. And Brian was a a wholehearted worshiper, but he was also built like a tank, and he was a hockey player, and he played guitar like he was, I don't know, like he was beating the thing. I used to tease him and say he would look at the guitar, and, and it almost... Strings would break when he looked at the guitar, and it was like, if it was on the stand, Brian would look at it, and I think you could see the guitar kind of go, <laughs> lean over. He was like a, but he was a wholehearted worshiper. I feel like I was so blessed to, to have him as an example in that. But myself and two other musicians started playing right away. He said that thing, and you know, it wasn't like I had a dream of a worldwide ministry, at, you know. But it was a word of, of conviction that, hey, now's the time to serve. Here's the place to serve. You can start where you are. You might be thinking that God's going to open something up for me, but start here, serve here, serve one another. Like Jesus says, I've set an example for you that you should do as I did to you. Start serving right here where you are. Ours is a servant king who calls us to follow his example of serving. Are we going to obey him? And he even shows us where to start with one another. Here's a, here's a place you can look for needs right here. And then we look back at the foundation and see the roots from which his service grows and flourishes. Jesus loved them. So back to that passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Above all, he says, keep fervent in your love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. And then Peter carries on. It's like he's repeating what he heard Jesus say here. Each of you has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another. I think sometimes keeping our love fervent will happen when we are employing our gift rather than, oh, out of love, I've got to use it. No, I think it'll... I think the the fire gets lit because of that. So, we'll finish with what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, knowing these things, knowing what I've just said to you and what I've just done for you, knowing these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Don't just think about it. Don't just say, oh, I want to, that's inspiring to think that the highest would assume the role of the lowest and would serve. No, don't just think about it. Do something. Serve. Serve the people around you. G. Campbell Morgan, a preacher of a generation gone by, 
he wrote regarding this verse, a theory of serving is of no use. Its practice is what's valuable. A theory of serving is of no use. Its practice is what's valuable. So let's bow our heads for a second and pray. Father, there's an application of this, I know, in each of our lives. And some of it, God, there, there might be things that can come from me as a pastor or from someone else in our lives. But also from within us, God, we can, I pray, you would stir by the Holy Spirit and highlight those things where it's like, well, here's a gift I have and here's a need that that gift would match. Who's around me, God? What needs do I see? If I can't meet that need, God, do I know someone else who can? And I might serve by being a middleman in some things. Spirit of God, I pray that you'd work in us even tonight. That we wouldn't be a church of hearers only, but of doers. And that, God, you'd find in us a place where um, people can be built up because brothers and sisters are serving. Brothers and sisters are living examples of what Jesus did in bowing low and washing feet. No entitlement. No job too low that we can do those. Thank you, God. God, I pray for encouragement in these things. If there's any sense that this is a a correction, God, I see it as a, a call to action in these last days, God, in this hour, in this time to serve the church, to serve one another and build up. And I pray you'd empower us to do so. I'm going to just ask you to respond. If, there's, if you sense that God is stirring you to employ yourself in serving the body, and you'd say, well, I'm not quite sure how, but God, here I am, Use me. I want you to just raise your hand to God. I'm not even going to look. This is between you and God to say, God, use me. Use me, God. I feel the need to serve the one another of the church, the people of the body. And beyond, but starting here, thank you, God. And Father, I want to speak the blessing in advance that Jesus just spoke. 
Knowing these things, you are blessed if you do them. I speak that blessing over the church, that we would be the blessed people of God who serve one another in the spirit and power and love of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. I'm going to open the altar as we always do. Um, uh, Come to the front if you would like prayer. Uh, stay in fellowship. Maybe you want to just come up to the front and just pray. I, you know, really, let's let's have this as a place where we can we know we can come and have a, a moment with God. Whether you want someone to pray with you, if you don't, and somebody comes up, just say no. I I just want a minute with the Lord. Uh, this this altar, this area is open for us to come and seek the Lord. So come and do it. Uh, I'm not sure if there's anything else that needs announcing right now. Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace.